it's about bringing the content to the people who might be interested. And you don't do that through bland marketing. We talk about our mission. We talk about our cause. We talk a lot about the why, because I think this is the common ground where you can start a conversation. If both sides understand the why, then you can talk about the solution. Welcome, this is Speak Like a CEO, the leading podcast on CEO and founder communications. My guest today is Sophie Chung, back for round two. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Oliver. It's good to be back. Thank you. Uh, I have to say thank you. You let us uh, test and train podcasting on you in episode nine. We were like real rookies back in 2018 <laughs> at the time with Lena Carlson as my co-host. So thank you for that. I just listened to the episode. It actually, it has aged rather well, but that's all because of you and not because of us. We were quite clumsy still as hosts. <laughs> not at all. I used to I used to be a researcher, so I used to work with uh, quite some um, animals. So it's uh, good to almost like be uh, give back as 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 a lab rat basically <laughs> that's amazing so um a lot of things have changed obviously in the last four years uh, for all of us in the world but also for your business so we want to talk about that you just um raised series a 10 million there's a pivot on the product side obviously it's it's about digital health so very topic in the last few years both digital and health and put together you know twice as much um First of all, what hasn't changed, I would say no bullshit. That was one of your quotes and you basically apply this to communication. You don't accept bullshit, you don't give bullshit. And we use this as the title of the episode. Is that I guess that's still a mantra of yours. That's still a mantra of mine. No bullshit, no assholes. Um, this is what we live by. Excellent. Perfect. You're a trained medical doctor, I should add. Um, you're a black belt, you're a mountaineer, you're a mother, you're many amazing things. And uh, we love having you on the podcast because you also think deeply about communications and the many different aspects because you've seen it from so many different sides, I presume, as a consultant at McKinsey, as a doctor, as a founder, raising money with patients and so on. So that's that's very, makes me very curious. So um, let's dive right in. Um, Kuna Medical, um, to Kuna Suite, what, what's, what's the pivot about? Yeah, so um, it's not quite a pivot. I like to describe it as a business model extension. Because to me, a pivot is you do one thing and then you stop doing this thing completely and then you turn 180 degrees around and then you do something different. And this is not what we did. Um, so QNA Medical, the marketplace that helps patients find the right doctor still exists and uh, is something that we still drive and that we still want to see grow and all of these things. But in addition to that, or I should say, and in addition to that, um, we expanded our business model to uh, now bring software capabilities or digitalization capabilities to hospital doctors and hospitals nowadays. And all of that came from our original marketplace business. Um, you know, when uh, back then, when we talked, I just basically started off and uh Back then, the, the thinking was, you know, how hard can it be? I mean, we kind of knew it was hard to say, hey, on one hand, on, on, on one side of the marketplace, we have patients. On the other side, we have doctors and then let the magic happen through our product. And that also worked quite well. But what we realized step by step was that 
a customer journey in healthcare, which is a patient journey, is much more complex and much more complicated than a typical customer journey, let's say in e-commerce or let's say in, you know, booking a hotel or, or, or a flight, because it's, it's basically almost an instant buying decision. And yes, you do your research, but it doesn't take you six months to book a flight, uh, in, 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 in normal cases, but it can take you six months to actually go from, the thought of, hey, I need a procedure to, okay, I'm actually going for it. And uh, the question is, what happens during that time? And it's not like nothing. There, a lot of things are happening. You have to go to the doctor. You have to get diagnostics. You have to speak to different people. You need to get medical data um, and documents. Uh, you have to send them around and all of these things. And for us, this is, this is when we realize that, holy shit, like the patient journey is so complex. But nobody thinks about the patient journey from a patient-centric perspective. And this is why healthcare is so fragmented and disjointed and intransparent because everyone in healthcare does their own thing, but nobody connects the dots. And um, so that's what we did. We started to build a kind of a software to connect the dots for our patients who came to the marketplace. And at one point, the software that was connecting the dots became Qno Suite because it added so much value for our hospital clients that they said, hey, Qno, what you do here is amazing. And we actually want to buy that piece of software and we want to use this for all of our patients, not just the patients that come through from your platform. And this is when we basically followed the market demand and saw that we could have such an impact with the hospitals we, work, uh, we worked with that we kind of took the software, we put a different label on it, which we call Qno Suite, as you, as you said. And this was kind of the birth of kind of a software business but in the end, it's kind of the same engine. When you lift the hood up, it's the same engine that we've been building and using all, all th through all the years. Wow. And, and is that the, the part of the business where you see the most potential going forward? Uh, yes, absolutely. And um, also that was, to be honest, a little bit of a change in mindset and thinking on my end. Uh, because, you know, I started off and said I wanted to to build a direct to consumer platform. I wanted to build a patient product. I wanted to, you know, build a strong patient brand and all of these things. And this still, this is still true. And I really had to also get myself to the point to say, do I want to build software for hospitals? Do I want to build a B2B thing, a B2B business? What does it mean for me? And to be quite frank, at the beginning, it didn't sound so enticing to me. Uh, but what I realized was, you know, our vision is to create, is still to create a more, a better, more humane healthcare experience. And in order to get there for as many patients as possible, I do think that you need to find a way to enable the hospitals and doctors to create that better experience. We won't be able to do this all by ourselves because we will never, ever be able to capture a large enough market share through our own platform. Um, so, for example, when you look at Airbnb, right, like they they are pretty big. They are. But when you look at the whole market of hotel booking, they are still pretty small. Yeah. And they will never, ever be able to capture the whole market of people who are looking for hotels. And not because they're bad, but this is how this is because of how the market works, because you have so many incumbents in the market. And similar to that is the healthcare market. You have all the hospitals and all the practices who've been around for the past 30, 40, 50 years. And I don't think it's the right way to go and say, we want to take over their market share because 
quite frankly, I don't think this is realistic, but rather say, how can we help the people and the hospitals and the doctors who are already in the market get better? Yeah. And the answer is through technology. Uh, and focus on the patient, right? Because um, exactly. I, I mean, just one example, I went to hospital last year, I had a broken finger, nothing major, but I was sent from A to B to C to D, back to A and back to B. Basically, they just like to keep you around. You have a pile of paper, yeah. everyone you know, makes yeah. a few notes on this, sends you back, you have to sign another few five forms, whatever. So it takes forever. And, and you, you know, can't help thinking, this can't be an efficient way of running any organization, because um, a lot of these medical care professionals should spend time on different things, not on administration, not on filling in forms. All of that could be done better. I had a CD-ROM. I, I kid you not, right? They they gave me x-rays. <laughs> well, at I... least you had a CD-ROM <laughs> and not a printout. That's already... I had a CD-ROM of, yeah. of an x-ray from my doctor. And then I had, you know, you can't make this up. But um, is, is the challenge, therefore, is it a technological challenge or is it um, a human challenge about convincing hospitals and the people who run hospitals to leave behind a system they've been used to all of their lives and embrace the new? I think it's it's more of a resource and skill problem. Um, so, you know, when we go and speak to doctors and hospitals, and oftentimes they come to us, we don't have to explain to them the problem. Believe me, they know how shitty the patient experience is. And they are as unhappy about this as we are as patients. Um, so, you know, there is, that that doesn't need any convincing. We don't have to sell our product by explaining the issue or the problem at hand. But the problem is that they don't know how to solve it. First of all, because there's such a shortage of resources, like doctors are so, not just doctors, but basically everyone who works in healthcare is so thinly stretched that you know, they lack the time and the resources to think about improving the patient journey because they can barely keep up with what is happening right now. So that's one thing. And secondly, technology and digitalization is not healthcare's forte. And again, not because the people are not willing to do it, but, you know, like when you look at healthcare education. So when I, when I went to medical school, I don't think I had a single lesson in six years of medical school on digitalization on digital health, right? This is this is how bad it is. So you you have these massive problems, but the people are lacking resources, time, ideas on how to solve them. And this is when, where we come in. We say, you know, we are here to allow you to spend more time with your patients. And we are here to allow you to manage your days more efficiently and more productively. Uh, and that's where, you know, this is where the magic happens. So, and and therefore, you know, for us, the, the decision to to expand our business model and um, basically officially launch Kuno Suite in the market, uh, we call it a patient relationship management software because that's what we do. Yeah. We help hospitals manage patient relations end to end. Um, wasn't, it wasn't a tough decision at all. It was so clear. We will go where the market is. There's so much demand. There's a huge problem to solve. I mean, what better than jumping right into this and do your part in solving that? It almost strikes me as CRM for hospitals. It seems such an obvious idea. Yeah. Doesn't it exist? No. That's shocking. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, I, we have done extensive market research and you see it here and there, but nothing that can do the things in an extent as, as we are. And 
I know it's mind blowing, right? CRM yeah. for hospitals, it completely makes sense. Like, why doesn't it exist? Well, it, it did also make sense. For, now it does. It, it does. Also for your investors, uh, you raised 10 million in Series A. So can you talk to us about that? Where the investors like, oh, thank you. This is a great idea. Here's a check. Was it that easy? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I wish. <laughs> I'm still looking for the investors who's, uh, investors throwing mon money after me. So if anyone listening, um, hit me up. But Maybe, you know, a little bit of history since we talked the last, last time. So there was a, a big thing that happened, the pandemic. And our business model was quite impacted by the pandemic. So during the pandemic, this is when we did the shift. But when we went into this, we were still very much on the direct-to-consumer side. We were still in international travel and all of these things. We were still working with international hospitals all across the world. And we were quite impacted because it, it just shook the world of healthcare and I mean, we were in, in the midst out of it, right? And um, during that time, I was supposed to fundraise, actually. And um, as probably you remember, you know, year 2020, 2021, this were the golden years for startups. Like, this is where the most unicorns were minted and all of these things, because a lot of other startups were benefiting from the pandemic and the whole digitalization movement that was going on, except for us, it felt like. And um, so I couldn't raise. I couldn't go out and raise because we just didn't have the growth numbers. To, we were growing, don't get me wrong, we were growing, but we were grow, weren't growing as aggressively and as, uh, as much as, as many others and not beco because we couldn't, but it was because the market didn't allow us to really grow. And so it was really tough. It was really, really tough to, like, to, to watch other startups left and right uh, raising their rounds and we were kind of strapped and uh, handcuffed because we couldn't we couldn't make it work. Thankfully, we have an amazing investor base, an existing investor base that said, you know, Sophie, we know, we trust you, we trust the product, we know you will get out of it, we will support you. So we we did a little bit of a, a small bridge during that time to to get through the pandemic to extend our runway. But also at the same time, we didn't just sit there and did nothing. This is when Kuno Suite was born. This is when we basically invested a lot into product and technology and all of these things. And that allowed us to come out of the pandemic stronger than we went into. And in 2022, when basically VC was, I don't want to say dying down, but became more defensive or a little bit more conservative on things, this is when our time came. And this is when we had all our numbers ready and our story ready and our product ready. And we went out and we raised our around, um, I don't want to say fundraising is easy. For me, fundraising has never been easy, but we were able to convince our existing investors to support to keep supporting us and at the same time we have new two large new investors joining both um with a spike in digital health uh and uh we raised this um very yeah in a in a very uncomplicated way and are super proud and super happy that that it worked for us yeah year. no that is amazing and and all these challenges over the last few years how has that impacted your leadership style and and you know what you stand for as a leader if at all um, I'd say it, so it didn't really, I, I'd like to think it didn't change my leadership style, but it, it made a few things much clearer that I thought I would know or do already. So one thing, like you mentioned at the beginning, um, no bullshit. And what does that really mean? Right. And I was always, I, I tell each of my employees, I never, I will never lie to you. You can ask me anything. I will never lie to you. There might be things I can't talk about. Uh, but you will always get the truth from me. Um, but you know, you, you, you can, you can choose like the, the grade of truth. You can still choose and regulate. And for example, during the pandemic, 
there were situations where I didn't have an answer. I didn't know how long this is going to take. I don't know where we're going to be in 12 months from now. But still, everyone was looking at you as the founder and CEO and looking at what you would say and react. And in these moments, I just stuck to the truth. I stuck to what I knew, what I didn't know. I stuck to how it made me feel. Um, to rally the team and everyone around us, around me. And and I think that really, really helped with the team, but also with, with my investors. I mean, you know, believe me, it wasn't, wasn't easy to communicate with investors as a founder who's supposed to grow and, you know, take the world and all of these. And then you go into these times where you had to cut, uh, kind of not cut back, but, you know, really watch your runway and all of these things. But for me, a big learning was, especially in tough times, this is, this is when no bullshit really counts. And oftentimes you see the different, uh, the opposite, right? Yes. Like when tough times hit, this is when people start lying. This is when people start making up things, when people start uh, playing down things uh, and, and all of these things. But I very I consciously, but also intuitively chose to not do that and be absolutely truthful to everyone around me. And I think that was that was one of the biggest learnings for me. And not just to the people around you, right? You, you were quite outspoken in general, also externally. Yeah. I mean, that's all, also something that I, I dislike myself when I see people speaking publicly and you just know they're bullshitting right now. You just know this is not the complete truth. You just know they're just covering up something or making something look better than it actually is. And this is really not helpful. This is not helpful for anyone. It's like, why are you doing this? I would rather you not say something than say something like this because it's misleading. It's not helpful and all of these things. So I think, and I'm trying to be different here. I, I'm trying to, whenever I say something, I want to make, you know, not a huge difference, but I kind of want to add value. If I have something, if I don't have anything to say, I, I would rather not do it but if i decide to say something or take a stance i want it to be genuine i want it to be truthful i want it to be value adding i want it to be something that you know kind of makes sense and not be something that you've already heard a hundred times before yeah and i appreciate that and uh, as, as a communicator would you say that um because the world has changed in the last few years that you know, that's what's required now from a leader to communicate in this way, because we see all kinds of things, right? So it's hard to say this is this is the way to go. Yeah, I do think it is required. And what shocks me or wonders me is why is it still not happening? When you, you know, like when you go and listen to politicians and all of these oh. things, I think, why are they still communicating the same way? And you can, I mean... You are a pro. I'm pretty sure you can tell that they were trained, right? But I've been in this game for long enough to also can tell that the answers that they're giving are not spontaneous, genuine answers that they're giving the journalists. It's like something that was written down by somebody before. And I feel like, why are they still doing this? Because people are not stupid. People who are listening to you are not stupid. So why don't you choose the genuine way to sit down and just go like, look, this is how it is. And you might not like the answer, but that's the truth. Yeah, um, not to excuse but me to explain because I am in the midst of this and, and I try to steer people away from this too but the reason is, is usually fear um, mm. it, and lack of preparation I, I, would, I would add that so <laughs> these two just to explain very quick 
um, fear because we live in a times of headlines and tweets taken out of context. So you say something that needs some explanation, but all people hear or see will be, you know, by your political opponent, by be a competitor, a short half sentence taken out of context. So people want to avoid that. And that's why they end up with sound bites written by a pro, usually the speechwriter, comms professional, whoever. The other one is lack of time because usually people, especially politics, but also business CEOs, etc., they don't have a lot of time, right? They have, they work very long days and they, you know, 15 minutes before they go into the next meeting or hold a, uh, give a talk or whatever, they look at the briefing and don't have time to, you know, do more than just quickly internalize the one page briefing. So these are the two things. So how do you deal with that? I think it's reduce volume and focus on quality, not just quantity. So as a politician, I would rather explain something one or two times a day rather than five times a day, but do it really properly and focus on that because we have means of dissemination uh, and we can distribute information, you know, just, just make that work. Um, and, and courage, courage, right? Because I mean, exactly. the German chancellor, for instance, is a good example who is, um, you know, who knows who he is because all he says is, is scripted and not even in a great way in my view. So there's a, in the communication, communication circles, like, you know, what is he doing? Why can't he explain what he's doing? And so courage and focus on communications, put it first. And if there's too much going on, reduce the volume. Absolutely. I, I think that's, you know, it's, it's always really great to hear this from, from a, from a pro like you. On the other hand, I feel, so I do acknowledge, yes, you, of course you need to be trained and, you know, and, and things like these. And yes, you, as a, especially as a politician, you have to be careful in how you phrase things and stuff. So yes, this can be learned and you should learn that. On the other hand, I think, if you stick to the truth, if you stick to the facts, if you stick to what's going on, you don't need preparation because you don't have to make up things. You can just, you know, tell as it is. Yeah. And that's kind of where where I'd like to count and say, okay, if you have a if, if there's lack of time, that's even more so a reason to not have to, you know, do much storylining. And again, I do acknowledge that you have to somehow make it digestible for the outside world, for the media and all of this. But uh, I mean, you just showed a really, really great bad example. This is how you lose the people, and yeah. then you ask yourself, like, how, why, why are there, why are, why is society so confrontational, or why do politicians lose their voters? It's because the connection is just not there anymore. Whatever you know, somebody says, it's it doesn't create a connection. It's not emotion, non emotional. People are not stupid. They know it's not genuine. So why bother? Exactly. That requires true leadership, whether it's in business and politics or any other arena. And true leadership means I know what, I, as you say, I tell the truth. I know what I want to say and I stand for something. I will just repeat this and I will just go in and try to persuade people as good as I can. Then I don't have to rely on, on someone else to tell me what to say and yeah. think. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't believe it. In a lot of, um, especially in so larger companies, often the communicators ask the C-levels to use teleprompters and and you know, when you hear this and you see this in all earnest, it's a, no, you, you don't do that because as a CEO, as a leader of an organization, you have to be able to speak freely about what you want to do with this organization. I mean, seriously, you can't read this. People will lose all trust. They can see you're reading this. They know it's not mm -hmm. your words and they will lose trust. But I, I think... Um, in the last few years, the acknowledgement and the understanding that that's not the way forward is has grown. Mm. And people like you and I obviously keep repeating this message. So no, be, be authentic, be a genuine communicator, um, but still a long way to go. Mm. Um, back to you and Kuno Medical. So what, what what's next? What's on the horizon? How do you 
sort of think the next few years will will develop for you? Well, um, I think, you know, in terms of targets, goal setting, vision, not much will change. And this is something we've been quite consistent around to say that, you know, all we're about is to create a better, more humane healthcare experience. Um, commercially or kind of business-wise, of course, we want to grow and get bigger and bigger. So commercial success is was and will be uh, an important point for us. So we're growing the team. We want to bring our software to more doctors and hospitals uh, in Europe, but also, um, you know, across the pond uh, to yeah. the US. So that's definitely something that's on our roadmap. And then secondly, in order to drive commercial success, we need an amazing product that we can sell. Mm -hmm. So a big part is going, a big part of our brains are going into product development technology. And we have, we have a great product already that, you know, is out there that nobody has built it that way before, but it's far from where it can be. And this is where we are pushing ourselves day to day yeah. to get it better. And I assume that your marketing, your messaging has moved from B2C, your business to patient, uh, more to B2B, you know, you to hospital. So how has that impacted your marketing and communications? Yeah, that's really interesting. And maybe you have some advice for me on the long, <laughs> along the way as well. So it's been quite a, you know, it's been quite a shift uh, for us externally and internally as well, because we went from speaking to patients uh, uh, only to also now having to speak to decision makers and stakeholders in hospitals uh, and practices. And uh, so we do have to kind of put a lot of thought into how we want to communicate, how we want to brand ourselves. Also, you know, little things like wording and uh, communication channels, for example, um, you know, with our patients, we used very digital channels, um, social media, and all of these places where our patients were. Um, that is very different now with uh, with our hospital clients. And also the, the, the way we, we market, right? Like with patients, we were digital marketing only. Uh, we reach them through digital channels only. Uh, and now we are starting to go to conferences again because this mm. is where the decision makers are and this is where, yeah. you know, our, our clients are and things like these. And that's also a big shift for me and, and, and my my thinking, to be honest. So let, let's be specific. That's super interesting. I, I'm, I'm assuming that SEO played a big role initially uh, the B2C arena and now B2B. What, what's your main traction channel? At the moment, it's LinkedIn. So SEO in direct to consumer is super important because this is what consumers are looking for, right? Nobody is Googling patient relationship management software because first of all, it didn't really exist before. <laughs> and secondly, it's just not fun to Google this, right? And I mean, yeah. people Google hair transplant, people Google other things uh, that are a little bit more interesting and fun, but patient relationship management software, people don't Google. First of all, that. Secondly, again, you know, direct to consumer is a mass market play. You want to reach as many consumers as possible. We, and the, on the B2B side, we don't want to reach as many consumers as possible or as many people as possible. We want to reach the right ones. So targeting, messaging, uh, being very specific and making a conscious decision to say, this is who I want to reach. And this is the group I don't want to reach is very, very important and has, has, uh, yeah, has also changed quite mm. a bit. Interesting. And how do you approach this on LinkedIn? Do you do you identify 
hospital decision makers and then send them cold messages or no <laughs> this we don't do but um yeah and and one other thing uh before i answer your question sorry is also the way you explain your product mm -hmm. a direct to consumer product is super easy to explain because we all are consumers right so yeah. i can explain it to you and everyone everyone still understands what you do looking for but eggs we have eggs <laughs> Exactly. Do you want milk? Here's milk, right? Like your tooth is crooked. You want to get it fixed. I will explain it to you. 10 But ways to get your teeth fixed. Exactly. But patient relationship management, dear Oliver, should I explain this to you? It's, it's just not, you know, it's just not working. So also here putting, and I'd say we're not there yet to be able to explain our product in simple words. So you understand it because it's also a very complex product. So what do we do? It's really about Now it's about bringing the content to the people who might be interested. And you don't do that through bland marketing. So uh, we talk about our mission. We talk about our cause. We talk a lot about the why, because I think this is the common, this is kind of the common ground where you start, where you can start a conversation. If both sides understand the why, then you can talk about the solution. So, and that's why I said LinkedIn, because that gives me a platform where I can put my thoughts into writing where I can, you know, push this into my network and I allow the people to, ha to have the time to also think about what the content is and the why is. And if it's interesting for them, get back to me. Um, although I know that LinkedIn might not be the most scalable place. So we are thinking about other channels and it will always be a mix. Um, marketing nowadays is always multi-channel. So Yeah. I mentioned offline channels already, but we're also looking at online channels because also decision makers are online. They are yeah. just not online the way patients are. And how do you approach your message market fit? Um, I'm sure you're looking for the right stories, the right words to persuade the decision makers as quickly as possible. So what 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 arguments, what messages are working? Save time, save money, patient welfare. What's working? Happy patients, happy doctors. That's um, that's nice. our our yeah. That's our simplest way to explain it. And no, quite frankly, you know, I'm absolutely of the opinion, and I'm absolutely convinced that what we do will create or is creating a win-win situation. When the patient journey works well, the doctor experience is also yeah. really really well, right? Yeah. And so we're trying to really build the bridge and, and close the gap here between patients and doctors still and make the experience for both sides a more enjoyable one so that in the end we can create better outcomes and who like which doctor doesn't want to create better outcomes yeah. right so yes. the interests are absolutely aligned and this is where this is where where kind of our messaging comes in we're not trying to sell over something where but really If you explain it why you do this and it, it becomes it becomes very clear very fast to everyone involved mm, interesting so you mentioned linkedin you're also very active on instagram you have 20 plus thousand followers is that still an important channel for you ah yes it is so instagram it's i don't want to say it's a love-hate relationship i have but i go back and forth on what i should do with it I love my community. It's um it's so fun and it's um it's very loyal as well. Um very interested in 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 what I have to say. But at the same time it also takes a lot of time. 
to create content to put this out there. Yeah. And for me, I, I have to admit, with Instagram, I haven't I haven't found my place there yet. And you know, if you follow me, or if you have followed me for a while, you see I've been quite inconsistent. Sometimes I post a lot. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I post, you know. Uh, content about my work but then i'm not sure if it's really interesting to everyone and then i post more kind of lifestyle things because i'm a big foodie and people love my food stuff yes. um and and all of these things and i try to kind of put my personality into this but i'd love to do more of it at the same time i have to admit i just i haven't i haven't found my place there and i'm still struggling with finding the right balance of content and also quality of content, I'm not sure, is it more kind of the fast, simple things that people like, or is it more the thoughtful, you know, longer content pieces? Or maybe it's a mix. Uh, I don't know. But I think, it's, it's, I think Instagram itself is confused about this, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not us, it's Instagram. Right. Exactly. And that doesn't make it easier. Yeah. So I still have it. I still love my followers. I still love posting there. But I haven't found kind of my place to to make it you know an established channel i i, I disagree i think your content is excellent Thank and it you. shows sophie the person which is i think what the channel should be about and um you know the the, the different sides so uh, i i love your content <laughs> now talking about um what matters to you what's dear to your heart uh, there's also two hearts uh, an organization you're uh, close with so what is it about so uh, Two Hearts is a tech community that caters to people in Germany, to young talents uh, in Germany with Two Hearts. That means young people with migration background. So typically when you grow up in, in Germany with a migration background, you have a German heart, but also you have a heart that comes from the origins of your family. And um, and it's a beautiful thing, right? It's a beautiful thing to have two hearts. And um, unfortunately, uh, publicly, it's not always discussed like that. Also in Germany right now, where you, you know, in the discussion of dual citizenship, it's, uh, I don't, <laughs> I really don't appreciate the tone that's been, been put out there. But, um, but what really is the common thread for people with two hearts most of the, most of the time is that, and I'm one of them as well, is that you do grow up in social circles that, doesn't necessarily set you up for success when you want to go into tech, when you want to become a tech entrepreneur, because you you lack the resource, you lack the experience, uh, you lack the network. And all of these things that, you know, it's just so much heavy lifting for you to actually get to the place where some other family offspring might have just been set up in a better way, just through the way they, through their socialization and through the resources and network that was at hand. And we kind of try to bridge the gap here and say, hey, there are already a bunch of really successful people with two hearts. And we're not just exclusively to people with two hearts. We have a bunch of kind of German, German mentors who say, I love your cause. I want to be part of it. And uh, we welcome them into the community as well. But two hearts is really about building the community, offering the network that you might have lacked growing up and uh, starting your career. And that's kind of what we do. A big part of Two Hearts is a mentoring community where we match mentees with really high caliber mentors. Um, because oftentimes in all our stories is meeting the right person at the right time, the right person giving you the right nudge to, you know, fulfill your full potential. And that's 
those are the things that we try to institutionalize a little bit so we can bank on the full potential of people with two hearts in Germany. Yeah, I love that. And I think the the, the problem with this uh, debate, as you said, which is sometimes led in a negative way, is that some people see this as subtraction, right? So you can't be fully this if you're also that. But it's not a zero-sum game. Identity is not a zero-sum game. It, it adds. And, you know, I think everyone can understand it when it comes to, okay, I'm maybe... Berliner, but also German. I'm also kind of British. I'm also European. And, and I actually went yeah. abroad as a young man to, to have two hearts because I, I didn't grow up with two hearts. So in, in a way, it's something I personally seek out and, and, and enjoy because it, it, it enriches life. But yeah, it, it is, it is uh, it's a fantastic initiative. So um, I, I really, really appreciate it. And wait, you, you're wearing the jumper, right? So that's, I'm, I'm assuming that's a jumper. That's a two hearts jumper you're wearing? Uh, it, it happens to be a two hearts yeah. jumper. Exactly. Yeah. For the, obviously, you can't see this now, dear listeners, but Sophie's wearing a, a yeah. fantastic jumper with the two hearts logo on it. So if that applies to you or appeals to you, uh, get in touch with uh, two hearts. Yes, please. Uh, another question I want to ask is Victoria Berlin. Uh, you're climbing mountains, you have a black belt, we know that, but you're also into football now? Yeah, so uh, FC Victoria Berlin is the hottest club, the hottest women's club in town, I'd like to say. Um, no, it's a, it's an amazing initiative and I'm so, I'm so honored and happy to be part of it. Um, I think a little bit uh, less than a year ago when, you know, the, the Women's World uh, no, uh, European uh, Championship was happening. It happens coincidentally during the same time where four amazing women basically uh, founded FC Victoria Berlin. So the, the club and the brand existed before. They basically bought out the women's football club from FC Victoria um, and re-established this. So they kind of re-established this and then they did a fundraising round and invited over 80 I think 87 uh, investors to join the club as investors. And I think 75% of these investors are women, uh, which um, I think is a very, very strong sign. And right now the club plays in the first regional league. So that's the first league below the national leagues. And in, German, uh, in, in female football, you have two national leagues. So Erste and Zweite Bundesliga, uh, first and second Bundesliga and first regional league. And, uh, and the goal is for us to... Uh, get to first Bundesliga within the next uh, five years. I think it's uh, it's it's um, you know it's a it's it's a very noble goal. It's very doable, but in, it requires a lot of work. And um, and with my investment there, and I'm just one tiny investor out of many. I started to realize that women's football is just another symptom of what's go um, on on what's going on in 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 equality, gender inequality in the world. Um, so many people I've heard in the past who say, I can't watch women's football. They are just not as good. And it just doesn't look right. And, you know, like you hear this all the time. And then I realized, you know what? Like women's football clubs, they don't even train on, they don't even get to train on grass. They train on concrete because they don't have a place. They don't get a physiotherapist. They don't get a sports coach. They don't even get training clothes. They have to do this on the side. They don't get paid. And it's like, okay, if there is a lack of resources, if there's a lack of funding going into this place, how are all these women supposed to ever get better? And now I see this movement where people come, especially men, they come up to me and they say, Hey Sophie, I really enjoy watching women's football now. And and you know, and the things they say is like 
they are not as physical because women are naturally a little bit tinier than men, but they are much more technical and it's such a joy to watch them. And I like, you know, every time I hear this and those are men who, you know, just a few years ago were like, oh, I can't, I can't watch that. And so I think, you know, for me, the investment, a lot of times people ask me like, do you really believe that this is a proper investment? And my answer is yes, I do believe there's a proper business case behind this. But at the same time, I think it's amazing it's amazing uh, timing. And also third, it's amazing to be able to be part of a movement because when we started FC Victoria, only a few months later, a lot of other German-based clubs were like, ha, huh, hmm. we should have a women's team. And those were clubs who years ago were like, no, 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 we will never have a women's team. Or, you know, we kind of partner with other clubs to just have some women's team. And now everyone's like, wait, why don't we have a women's team? And this is this is what this is about, right? This is about starting a movement and you have to start somewhere. But starting somewhere also means hard work, means resources, means money, means attention, means reach, public reach and all of these things. And that's kind of what, what was happening. I, I think that's fantastic. I also agree that the time is right. Um, the European Cup last year, the final Germany-England, that was fantastic yeah. football, which a lot of people saw and say, oh my gosh, they're really technical. That is fantastic to watch, right? And um, uh, at the same time, I think men's football, you know, to be honest, I think we all got a bit tired and it's so much just about the money and everything else has gone overboard. So I think people find it harder and harder to relate to the players um, who are just, you know, 20 year old multimillionaires, you know, the, the average fan has nothing in common then. How can they identify? So I think there's yeah. there are a lot of question marks around that. So I agree. And I hope to see you at the next home game, home game in, in the stands. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, you, you should, you should come. <laughs> I, next I time come. I, I go to the stadium, I'll, I'll, I'm going to take you with me. Perfect. I love it. I know you have to go. Sophie, um, the final question, you know, I always ask this, what's your best piece of communications advice, uh, Sophie Chung in 2023? Yeah, no bullshit. Always stick to the truth. No bullshit. I sign up to that. Sophie Chung, thank you. See you in four years now. See you hopefully a few weeks uh, at Victoria Berlin or any other circles. So looking forward to that. And thank you for um, round two. As always, been huge fun and uh, amazing insights you shared. So thank you for that. Well, thanks so much, Oliver. Thank you. And see you all next week.